with confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. Welcome to Marching Orders. This is a new podcast series by This Week Community News that's all about Central Ohio's military veterans sharing their experiences. I'm Scott Hummel, Assistant Managing Editor at This Week. Let's get right to it. He's one of the founders of the Ohio Military Hall of Fame. He served in the Navy during the Vietnam War and was part of SEAL Team 1 and an underwater demolition team. He's earned the the Navy Combat Action Ribbon, National Defense, Presidential Unit Citation, Vietnam Service, Vietnam Campaign, Vietnamese Cross of Gallantry, and Expert Rifle Status. Ted Mosier, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you, Scott. So let's get to know you just a little bit. Uh, Tell us about your family and what you're doing these days, and um, just a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm married, um, have two children, six grandchildren, two great-grandchildren, so they're young enough to still pay attention to me. I kind of like that. Um, I'm still working at the present time, although if you shadowed me, you wouldn't think I was actually working. So they, I work as a food broker and as a uh, in the grocery industry and uh, represent manufacturers uh, who sell into the grocery trade. And you pointed out, or I pointed out also, that you're actually... Um a big part of the Ohio Military Hall of Fame. Tell me a little bit about what that is. Thanks, thanks, Scott. That's one of the things I wanted to cover. We have been around for 19 induction ceremonies since the year 2000. And the Ohio Military Hall of Fame, again, was started 1999. Our first, um, our first ceremony was 2000. And we honor Ohio's veterans who have been awarded a a medal for valor in combat. And that's Ohio's veterans who have uh, entered the service from Ohio or born in Ohio and have a qualifying medal. And we just had our most recent um, ceremony on May 4th, where we had 30 individuals uh, including one posthumous Medal of Honor and one um, recipient of a Medal of Honor who was still on active duty. And we, what we do is gather information from various sources. Anyone, we're welcome, uh, we welcome any information on qualifying veterans and we'll help them with the process. Uh, our selection process is basically verifying that they are qualified, and then we uh, assign them to a class. We're, we're gathering applications for the 2019 ceremony, which were booked for May 3rd, first Friday in May 2019. And you can read, get that application on our website, which is www. OhioHeroes.org, and it's currently under construction. It'll have classes from 2016 and before, and we have a, a young man, Jake Clark, who is helping us with the update process, but the application can be found on the website. And how late are you going to be accepting applications? 
what for the 2019 do, class? Thank you. Yes, what we do is once we reach 25, 20 to 25 individuals or about mid-February, then we cut the class off because we have to get together with the various government entities and get proclamations put together, that sort of thing for them. One of your 2018 class members was Don Jakeway, who was one of our uh, our first podcast guests. Yes, sir. So uh, just one more question about the um, the Hall of Fame is uh, you started off just a few guys sitting around gathering and, and chatting about the old times. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, our uh, the fellow that turned out to be our treasurer, Jim Garvey, is uh, he had written a letter to the editor uh, at the dispatch and um, describing uh, the scenario various scenarios that he witnessed and he did that to um, counter what was publicly being uh, put out there by the news media no no offense present company but the there was some um, atrocities and different things that various people were putting out there and he basically said if if um, if it happened, I would have seen it. I was there. He's a um, you know he he did a lot of uh, special forces work. I called him to congratulate him on his on his letter, and we talked a little bit. And he said, "Why don't you join us for our lunch group? Because we've all told the same lies over and over, and we're getting kind of stale." So that lunch group met approximately every month. Um, in the Columbus area, we had a gentleman, Ed Arthur from Cincinnati, who had the conception of this Ohio Military Hall of Fame. We thought it had merit, and uh, retired Major Bob White, who was also Special Forces, uh, put together the legal uh, paperwork with a lawyer, and we're off and running. And uh, 501c19, that means uh, that's the IRS um, nonprofit designation because we focus on military events primarily. And you're involved with uh, some other organizations as well, Catholic War Veterans. What are some other things? Yes, uh, Catholic War Veterans. Um, we are a, a, a nationally uh, or congressionally chartered a veteran service organization, um, and we, very much like American Legion or VFW, we uh, serve all veterans, but we want to focus on our Catholic veterans and help them both spiritually and, and material means as well uh, when possible. And you, you went to uh, high school at DeSales, is that where you graduated? I was three years at DeSales, and the tuition bumped a little, and I was working, making my own money to pay tuition. So I switched to Brookhaven and, and graduated with their 1967 class. Now, my, my heart is with DeSales, and I still maintain uh, innumerable friendships from people we went, I went to school with back then. You're at Ohio State. It's 1968. It's February. At the time, were you aware of uh, the, the Tet Offensive had just, had just occurred in January? And 
Tet Offensive is uh, it was a North Vietnamese campaign with some 85,000 troops. The focus was to take out major cities in South Vietnam and just annihilate American forces and uh, South Vietnamese troops. Were you aware of all that that had been going on at the time? You know, I was. I read the newspaper regularly, um, and I was aware of it. All, uh, although I couldn't really put it into, you know, a, a, a more detailed context because I'm still a student, and I, you saw things on on the news that made you aware of things going on. Um, that wasn't uh, the primary focus of my. Uh, uh, wanting to enter the Navy, you know, by itself. That wasn't the catalyst. Um, my, uh, I had started in the summer quarter and then the fall quarter in engineering. And the classes I was taking, I wasn't quite keeping up. I had a two-point average, which was due to slide backwards from that point. So... At that point, they if you had under a two-point average um, as a college student, you were subject to the draft. So I went down to the recruiter and to see what he had available. He told me, I have one opening for boot camp in San Diego. He told that same thing to the next several people coming through the door. Hey, you... It's a key in sales. You tell them what you need to, they need to know to make a decision. And, and I did. And I, I signed up right then, went home and, and told my parents. And dad says, well, why didn't you change your major? And I said, well, it's a little bit too late for that. I, I think, um, you know, I need to be, um, I need to be doing something else. And, and, uh, you know, he was, dad was a World War II vet. He, he flew C-47s and he flew paratroopers like Don Jakeway in, on D-Day and ended up with 23 combat missions and um, was, was uh, well regarded as a, as a pilot. And even still, you did enlist. It was during a very just heavy time for American troops. I think it was the week of February 11th to the 17th. It was the highest number of U.S. soldier deaths. I think the total was 543 or something close to that. The death toll was roughly 500 per week. And you could have stayed in school, but you, you went into the military and, and served your country. Yes, sir. Uh, so one of the things I want to get into, and I want to spend some time on, is you had um, eventually become part of SEAL Team 1, the training for SEAL Team 1 and the entry for SEAL Team 1, I'm sure, was not simple. Tell me a, lot, a little bit about that, what you had to go through. Um, thanks, Scott. The, it, I had no preconceived notion about what I was going to do in the service. And one of the times in boot camp, we had several hundred recruits in and watching a big screen movie uh, a recruiting on the underwater demolition teams, which were the uh, World War II frogmen, um, rolling off boats and blowing up stuff, and it looked looked pretty, um, you know, pretty studly. So anyway, so they offered a screen test, and I I tried the screen test, and it involved running calisthenics swimming um, and to see if you had the basic 
you know, wherewithal to at least begin training, and and uh, I passed that screen test. Um, from that point forward, in boot camp, uh, Navy boot camp, they want to steer you towards an A school. Uh, for me, it was aviation machinist mate, which is what I had aligned myself with. But once I'd passed the screen test, I thought, oh, I might lose my my opportunity for the underwater demolition training. So I, at that point, with Vietnam going pretty strong, uh, the SEALs, again, uh, let me backtrack a little bit. Navy SEALs were, were uh, commissioned in 1962, and they and they and um, there was a team on each coast, and they chose their people from the underwater demolition teams that were available. And SEALs were designed specifically to be uh, counter-guerrilla, uh, small unit, on land, in the jungles, and what have you, uh, uh, have a counter force uh, for those guerrilla, for the guerrilla warfare. Underwater demolition traditionally has been deploy swimmers, swim in, chart the waters, chart obstacles, come back and deploy in, again, sometimes under fire in World War II, um, to swim in. Uh, explosives to blow the obstacles to clear the way for the Marines to land uh, with with no obstructions. And SEALs were, in fact, even back then considered an upgrade. Um, that, you know, that's where you wanted to be. And um, so I was, I never served directly on an underwater demolition team. But what the training we went through was UDTRA, UDT replacement training and um, class 47 west coast for anyone tuning in um, the team guys will know what that means um, and i was selected directly for seal team one i was about half my class was was assigned directly to seal team one which is great my uh, i'd like to say i was the slowest swimmer in the class and i didn't want to hold up the udt guys in their normal mission Honestly, I might have been among the bottom five, but you got to be number one in something, so I'm going to be the slowest. Um, but I, I did well in, in the obstacle course and everything else that was required, including the, the book work where you had to you know, learn diving physics, explosive uh, safety measures, rate of burning and blasting caps and how to handle everything. So that, that was all uh, easy for me in terms of the academic work and the physical work um, I could handle just fine. You're listening to Marching Orders. Let's move up a little bit. This is July 1969. You had joined what was called Kilo Platoon. Tell me a little bit about Kilo Platoon. Yes, yeah, Scott. We, uh, SEAL Team 1 at that time, they had the primary responsibility for Vietnam because they were the West Coast-based SEAL team. And at any given time, they had three to four platoons of 14 men in country. Starting 1966, that's about when they had their first direct action platoons. And so this Kilo platoon was a direct action platoon. 
and direct action means uh, we, although we had Vietnamese interpreters and maybe a guide, a Kit Carson scout, which is a, a South Vietnamese person, or uh, you know, they had a Chu Hoi program, which means please switch sides and we'll pay you more. And we, you know, we had a few of those, but we had. We had, um, and, and we'll talk about it later, LDNNs, which are Vietnamese seals. So we would have, have some one or two uh, native personnel with us when we would go out on six to seven men um, ambush or, or whatever we were doing that night. Um, so that was Kilo Platoon. We were assigned to this NAMCAN area seafloat and if you look on a map there's a notch the furthest south in vietnam you can go there's a notch there's a bay on the west side of that point and the top end of that bay the Bai hop river flows in well up that river is nam can and on the south end of that notch the the kualan river comes through and that's where seafloat was located so we initially we had our squad was in old Namcan and we we worked um, our six and seven man um, uh, elements where we would try to develop a um, intelligence network rewarding information on Viet Cong and enemy activities and and with some luck we would have a guide with us who had seen the activity could take us where we want to go. So that's, um, we would typically go out at, uh, at night after dark and arrive on our location. Uh, we'd get inserted by boats and arrive on location after patrolling um, 1,000, 1,500 uh, meters, something like that, click. A click is 1,000 meters. So that would be about the most you could manage in that environment. And um, then we would set up for um, uh, an ambush or to snatch the, the target. Well, on the sea float, as I understand it, so this is in South Vietnam. This is in a rather a remote area in the Mekong Delta region. And it's a strong North Vietnamese stronghold in the south. And you have the Viet Cong that you're trying to look out for. On this sea float, it's amazing to me the size of this thing how they managed to sneak that type of vessel into such a remote location with such a strong North Vietnamese stronghold in that area. How did they go about that? Well, they didn't have, they couldn't sneak it in. It was pretty good size. They would, they would tow these barges in. I believe the term is an AMI barge. But the, they would tow them up river and have air cover to cover uh, potential uh, ambush threats, things like that. So we would, um, I remember being in Namcan and Yumin Forest wasn't that far away and B-52 bombs would be bombing the North Vietnamese troops, uh, making their lives miserable. You know, we'd feel the ground shake. Um, and I, I kind of feel sorry for them myself. I didn't want to be on the receiving end of some of that. So we kept fire suppressed if you will we didn't we didn't uh, control the area by any means of course we had the only air cover uh, so any helicopters we had um, 
uh, were part of our um, uh, overall uh, military posture. So it wasn't, it, it was just a very, um, very concentrated effort by the regular Navy. We, we didn't, the Navy SEALs didn't build this. We, we, the Navy built it, and it was part of the Brownwater Navy. And, uh, and, and they, you know, the CBs and what have you, they did a nice job of, of putting that operation together. At one end was, was a helo pad. Uh, where where these helicopters would land, they'd deliver mail and and food would come from a ship offshore out to sea and come up the river and resupply the the um, sea float with food. Speaking of food, wasn't there uh, there was at one point somehow you managed to get a traditional Thanksgiving dinner. How did that come to pass? You had turkey, you had cranberries, mashed potatoes. Here you are in South Vietnamese in this remote location. You're eating turkey and cranberries. That that was a surprise. Now, I don't, maybe somebody else planned that. But we were moving our platoon from that seafloat area, seafloat area up to the northwest, mm, maybe 70, 80 miles to a place called Rock Jaw, Rock Soy. And part of our trip was going north to Bintui, B-I-N-H-T-U-H, or T-U-E-Y, or Canto. They were both along that last branch of the Mekong River. Well, we, we would be going up river, and we stopped, and it was dusk, and it was Thanksgiving, 1969. And, and I thought, well, there we're just going to grab a bite to eat here, and and uh, whoever this uh, cook was for the Navy has just an absolute. I mean, I I remember white tablecloths. I remember the whole works. It's great. Some of the wildlife in Vietnam, not exactly your squirrels and rabbits you see here. You're an outdoorsman. Describe some of those. You've you've mentioned uh, that you've seen monkeys, snakes. There's a particular fish there that stands out to you. Well, I, I'm sure there's a Latin name for it. I call it a lungfish. I've seen it on NPR. The face looks sort of like a grasshopper, uh, a big grasshopper, but it scuttles along on the mud on its uh, front fins and, and flaps its tail um, to scuttle. You know, it can hold its breath or, or exist out of the water. And Mother Nature puts that, um, fixes that animal up so they can go from water hole to water hole. But we would sit on an ambush sometimes and get all settled in. And I'm looking at the moon and I'm looking at the uh, Orion, you know, the different star constellations and just pretty much relaxing, um, alert but relaxing. And these, you know, everything was settled down when all these lungfish would start flipping, you know, skittering through the mud, sometimes over your lap and things like that. But uh, it was sort of like having puppies jump on you. It was no big deal. And leeches? Um, that was only one time, and that was up there in Rockjaw. And most places down south was brackish enough water where there was enough saltwater mix you didn't have leeches. We were on an operation up up out of Rockjaw, 
R-A-C-H-G-I-A for reference. Um, and the we didn't make contact that night, but we were um, chest deep, maybe a little deeper in water the whole the whole evening. About three o'clock, we decided to secure the operation. Means everybody, you know, patrol out to the extraction point. And I was, I had my camouflage, long sleeve camouflage shirt on. And I noticed in the dim light that that I was bleeding on my wrist and not remembering any injury. Um, I rolled up my wrist and that was the first few leeches that I saw. So I had smashed them, you know, it, you know, coming and going. So, so, um, Brad Paisley has a, has a song out or did back then about a checking for ticks. Well, we immediately went into checking for leeches mode and we were in the, in the boat and basically stripping down and I had over 50 and under 55. So I'll split the difference. <laughs> 53 leeches on me. Um, and frankly, I didn't even feel them. Once I realized they were on me and 10 or 12 or 15 were ma mashed already. It was itchy, but no big, no big painful thing. And then, of course, you ran into the type of animal we all run into in the water. That's a water buffalo. I, I did. This wasn't in the water. This was in a outside where we were approaching a village. And people ask me sometimes, when were you the most scared? Well, the the most, the biggest jolt of adrenaline happened when, and we were patrolling so close we had to reach out. I had a guy, uh, Jim Ostack, ahead of me. And we would reach out and touch periodically every few steps so we would know the person is, is uh, in front of you. I was rear security. I didn't have to worry about touching anybody behind me. But as I was, I would be walking backwards and, and watching my field of fire and reaching and touching. And all of a sudden, I bumped into just a huge mass of muscle <laughs> with a big grunt, big low grunt. And that, that wasn't in my that wasn't in my um, awareness. That's what not wasn't what I was expecting. Um, so that um, I was very proud of being quiet, not making noise. But the heart was racing, and and I walked around. the 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 buffalo didn't move. He just grunting like you if you ran into a a cow in the you know on a farm. It's busy busy eating uh, eating whatever it's eating you're listening to marching orders i'm scott hummel with ted Mosier. ted the psychological warfare going on at the time was very intense just as uh, in world war ii the japanese had tokyo rose there was a such thing as uh, hanoi hannah in vietnam could you guys hear her on the radio at the time we couldn't when we got back to base we had uh, Armed Forces Vietnam Radio. Um, so we we got to hear the popular music of the time, uh, but we didn't we didn't have uh, radio access to to anything other than that. So, 
Yeah, and she uh, apparently at some points managed to reveal some of the locations of American troops, which, again, the psychological warfare warfare that was going on there, how she knew about that is uh, is beyond, I think, anyone. But it wasn't just in Vietnam. There was a, there was a feeling, I think, just among, even in America, everybody wondered, were you winning? Were they winning? How did it feel to you? Did you feel as though you were winning? I felt we were doing more killing. Um, Define winning, meaning winning the hearts and minds of, of the people and have them motivated to fight for their own defense. That's, you know, that's uh, ambivalent there because... The South Vietnamese government had had a lot of corruption and infighting going on, and the and North Vietnam had already inserted their their um, the Viet Cong and the other sympathizers after the Geneva Convention, 1954. They had already inserted their people, so you had an underground movement, and to convince them. Uh, to go communist or be anti-South uh, Vietnamese government. Well, the problem was they didn't have much of a, too much of a selling point, so they ended up um, convincing people at the point of a gun. Well, if the South Vietnamese government couldn't protect them, then they, they do what they're told at the point of a gun. There used to be, there used to be a, a phrase called, you have a choice of being red or dead, so they chose to be red or at least do what is necessary to stay alive. So we provided some protection, but we, we still needed, um, it, it was a tough situation. You, had, you couldn't be everywhere at once. And some of these people who acted like they were friendly and normal civilians would actively work enthusiastically for the Viet Cong after dark. So um, we were in a stalemate position. Uh, my own personal, you know, I'm a member of different organizations, so none of my opinion reflects their official capacity. But had we had more, been more aggressive towards North Vietnam, and wherever the enemy was being supplied, you cut off supplies and we'll reach an agreement, an, an accommodation after that. But you have to, have to be more aggressive towards North Vietnam, which to me included Ho Chi Minh Trail. Finally, they did some, some bombing in there. But, um, and the Viet Cong were getting a lot of support out of Hanoi. Oh, yes. Um, you know, there was... Uh, you know, various um, uh, Chinese weapons, Russian weapons, things like that, Chinese and Russian advisors. Uh, so that was, it was a battle us against communism, and we can't, uh, we can argue all day about how the war was conducted, but the fact that we were in there was for all the right reasons, so. And you made it, you survived. The feeling of coming home you were relieved you survived, anxious to get busy with schooling. What was it like coming home from Vietnam? Um, I was relieved. Um, you know, uh, my wife Linda and I had been married in September of 71. 
September 25th, Linda, so just, you know, I do remember that. Um, For those listening, Linda's the silent partner in the background. (laughs) Um, So we... So we've been married going on 47 years. Um, the uh, I was relieved to get back. I could tell the war was winding down, even when I was still in the service. And then I got uh, assigned to an instructional uh, capacity uh, for these beginning SEALs coming out of underwater demolition training. And uh, after I was separated from active service in November, I had my Volkswagen bug and we loaded it up and we just drove back across the country and I I had a job with Big Bear stores back then uh, in the grocery business and got another, you know, got started right away working for them in, in, in the Agler Road store in Gahanna, store number 50. And um, and then I started. I went back to Franklin University as a full-time student, working Big Bear part-time, and based on the hour hours for part-timers uh, are flexible. So when those dropped, I switched to working full-time and going to school part-time at Franklin University. While I was at Franklin, I took business courses, and it was. It was great because academically I was being fulfilled. I, I should have been that motivated four years ago, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything or four years prior. But I wouldn't change anything at this point. And um, uh, it was a little bit strange because I, I, I wasn't aware of any other veterans who were in school with me. Um, and... Uh, and it was still kind of a dark cloud. It was hanging over. It wasn't being resolved. This was 1971, 72 January when I started classes there. And the welcome home wasn't exactly a, a welcome It, it home wasn't. Everybody just, let's keep quiet. We won't talk about it. Everybody knows it's going on. And um, I didn't have anything to say uh, at that time. Uh, still sorting it out in my brain back back then, uh, and uh, even at Big Bear there was a uh, I'll name him now. Lenny Widener was our assistant manager, and um, they paid by pay vouchers at the window, and you signed a pay voucher, and they counted out about a hundred bucks. And Lenny's comment to me, and I still remember to this day, he says, you're not worth this much. Mm. And um, he's just looking at dollars and cents and a part-time, you know, meat grinder and and, uh, wrapper in in the meat department. So you got to just take a deep breath. He forgive him father he knows not what he talks about so i just i let that one slide i think i said something like well somebody thinks so so i i things like that tend i would i was still um pretty pretty on edge and frankly it took me you know uh 10 12 years to actually get involved in the veterans community my personal life was was fine. My career uh, kept moving along. Uh, my family was growing, and you know we got into our first house and 
got our first dog and everything. And you managed to good. coach your kids in uh, some oh, sports? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They were, um, the, the, the one thing that I'm a little embarrassed about, and, and I'd be, I'd lose my temper as a, you know, young guys lose their temper because they don't know any better. And I, and I wasn't any different. And they would, they would think I would be changing into the Incredible Hulk. And I hate to, I hate to scare my kids like that. And, I, and I'm embarrassed about it. But, um, but now I'm just an old, an old uh, blueberry muffin. You know, I just relax and drink coffee. I'm good. Now, Linda likes to say when I get talking politics with my political reference of one particular political party that begins with D, um, undercutting our efforts to support, to support South Vietnam, I, I, get, um, I get riled up and I'm very animated about that. But nothing's going to happen i'm like the toby keith song i'm as good i'm gonna i'm as good once as i ever was but I, it's only going to be happening once and i want to save it so that's all that's all fine no nobody will be threatened but i do get upset one final question for you ted what advice would you give those struggling now with civilian life, those who have gone over, they've served overseas, sometimes one, two, three tours, they come back? What advice would you give them for those who are maybe struggling? We, we've all heard about the 22 suicides a day. What advice could you give to somebody who might be struggling just dealing with civilian life? Well, it's, it's a huge problem, and, and it's these people doing multiple deployments uh, are unimaginable to me. After two six-month deployments, I'd, I'd pretty much had enough. And, and the, um, the guys now, men and women, have, have more support. But here's, here's what I'd tell them. Hey, you know, you're, you're coming through an experience. No, you will never be the same person you were before. But God's got a plan for you. And, uh, you know, it isn't taking yourself out of the game. So I, I'm not an official counselor, but I'm very sympathetic to those uh, with, uh, with having a rough time. And it, there was a long time when, when I'm, I'm still a little bit out of sorts and, uh, and saving Private Ryan at the end of that movie was, um, you know, live your life, you know, in order to be worthy of that sacrifice. So I, that's, that's the way I try to live. And I, I hopefully I can convey that to the others. I very much appreciate you coming in. And uh, Linda, thank you for coming in as well. Um, Ted, thanks for joining us, and thank you for your service. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. We want to hear from you, our listeners. Tell us what you think of marching orders and help us find brave men and women who have served and who have a story to tell. 
Email us at online at thisweeknews.com. That's online at thisweeknews.com. Subject line, marching orders. We're all over social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And it's all at This Week News. That's at This Week News. And this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And will be on our website at thisweeknews.com. I'm Scott Hummel. Thanks for listening.